Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. With our last live show of the season, we end where we began. It's our viewers' favorite show topic, Ask Anything, tonight on Call with the Prairie Doc. 21 seasons of providing health information based on science, built on trust. Hello and welcome to On Call with the Prairie Doc. I'm Dr. Andrew Ellsworth, tonight's Prairie Doc host. Thank you for joining us during our 21st season, providing health information based on science, built on trust. During our last live episode tonight, we will be answering viewer questions about any medical topic, your questions. Joining us tonight on the campus of South Dakota State University, our family medicine physicians, Dr. Scott Boyens with Sanford Health and Dr. Shelby Eichens with Avera Health. Welcome, Dr. Boyens, Dr. Eichens. Thank you. Come here. So, Shelby, if you would, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm um, Dr. Shelby Eichens. I practice at Avera here in Brookings. Um, I've been at Avera here for uh, 12 and a half years. Um, I did practice in Minnesota for almost five, so I'm a South Dakota transplant. Um, I practice general family medicine from newborns up to end of life. Um, I do do a little hospital work too, so you know if you're in the local hospital, you might see me there too. Um, yeah, just bread and butter family medicine. Awesome, good to have you here in Brookings. How about you, Scott? Yeah, Dr. Scott Boyens. I've uh, been a family doc here at Sanford in Sioux Falls for almost 25 years. Sioux Falls kid, pretty much. Uh, and so I've enjoyed uh, being a part of that community uh, throughout the years. Um, do a lot of just general family medicine, don't deliver babies anymore, but uh, and miss it, but uh, spend a lot of that extra time doing uh, primary care sports medicine for Augustana. So it takes a little time there. Sure, mm -hmm. excellent. So all the sports do you help out with? Or? All of them. Yep. Nice. And excited for hockey. Yeah, excited for hockey. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Well, before we start our conversation, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions. Viewers can contact us three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225, send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org, or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible, given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover, and we apologize if we do not get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your question. So we had a, a question starting right off from an email. Uh, this person says, I have several keratoses, patches, minor, on my forehead and ears. My doctor has treated them twice with nitrogen freezing. Lesions peeled off but returned. Should I repeat nitrogen or try another 
treatment. Topicals, comments on the eventual cancer concern. I have no cosmetic concerns. I'm grumpy old 76-year-old anyhow. White male Northern European type. What do you have to say about that, Shelby? So with keratosis, you gotta differentiate. Is it seborrheic keratosis, which are completely benign? And really, those things, you really don't have to do anything more or anything for them. They're purely cosmetic. I know some people really don't like all those plaques everywhere. Um, and yes, we do treat them with that freezing nitrous um, treatment. Um, and they can go away, but they can come back. That's the bummer about them. Okay. Those um, ones that are kind of have that stuck yes, on appearance. It looks like, like it a scab. That, and sometimes actually they you can catch them and they can flake off. Um, but yeah, those ones are not a concern. The ones that are, are a concern are the actinic keratoses and those can be potentially precancerous. And those are the ones that you will want to treat. Um, you can try the cryotherapy with that. Sometimes there's other treatments, um, but those are the ones that you should follow with your doctor if it doesn't go away after a treatment. Yeah. So, Scott, how can they tell if maybe it's one of these precancerous actinic keratoses? Yeah, usually those are, are, a lot of times they're on sun exposed areas for the most part ears, foreheads, scalps with no hair, you know, hair, uh, forearms, wherever. Um, and they're, they're usually flat, red, and a little scaly. Um, but I, uh, I will treat those, and and if they seem like they go away but they come back, I usually get a little bit more aggressive and say, hey, you know, is this truly an actinic keratosis? Because you start, you know, getting things on the ears and stuff that may be an early uh, superficial skin cancer. So that's that's one way I go with that. The other way is if you've got a lot of actinic keratosis on the scalp, some of the you know the 76 year old grumpy old man, whatever, he. You know, the dermatologist may go a little bit more aggressive and kind of do a peel of that skin to, to get those just to go away. There's too many to freeze yeah. at times. So. Where they use a cream yeah. and then yeah. it lights up yeah. and there's yes. red spots yes. all over. Yes. But then it usually gets better that way. Mm -hmm. yeah. Any problem with freezing a, an area more than once? Fine. Not usually. I think there's a little bit higher risk of scarring maybe. Um, in terms of, you know, that area becoming really light pigmented so you can see it or in certain cultures and skin types it can be hyper pigmented where it's darker skin so it looks like a scar. Um, but um, otherwise, I mean, I usually don't try to treat them more than a couple times at the most if it's those seborrheic keratoses. I kind of give them three strikes. Yes. <laughs> do it once, maybe we'll do it again, but a third time, I mean, I might do a biopsy, shave it off, yes. or, yes. you know. But you can treat an early cancer with freezing sometimes, too, yep. but not a yep. melanoma. No, melanomas are a different ball game, and those ones need to see, you need to see a dermatologist, they need to be excised, they need to check for other things, because melanomas can spread throughout your body, and those are not great ones to have on. They're usually dark and irregular and really dark in color. Mm -hmm. Anything growing or changing, you should get checked out, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, this, oh boy, oh, now we've got a bunch of questions all of a sudden now. <laughs> um, let's switch to cardiology, Scott. What are treatments for AFib? What is AFib? Well, atrial fibrillation, uh, it's when, it's a condition where the, 
the the top chambers, the atriums, are, are kind of doing their own thing, and the bottom chambers are kind of pumping uh, at their own rate. Okay, and it's just not a, a not a very effective, or, or uh, yeah, it's just not very efficient to pump when it's doing that. And and so things have changed with atrial fibrillation over the years. I mean, it used to be we did when I was early on in practice, we did everything in our power to get somebody out of atrial fibrillation, everything, and and we've learned with studies that that mortality isn't necessarily increased now if you if you can tolerate atrial fibrillation. So it's there's some that can't, some that can. Yeah, some and get tired. Some, and, yeah, some just can't their heart stand it, and, and, and some and don't notice it. They don't notice it at all. And so as long as you control the rate, they're fine. But there's there's all kinds of treatments. Uh, medication is usually what's done first, I and mean, we can shock them out of atrial fibrillation. We can uh, I can't, but there will be people that do. Um, we'll. There's ablations that you can do for atrial fibrillation. Some people, if they really can't tolerate, will have, uh, you know, pacemakers for for that too. So there's a lot of options, and a lot of different medicines too. You mentioned rate, you know, so a medication to help keep it slower, so it doesn't get too fast, out of control, and then anticoagulation. Shelby, what what is that? What why do we? So do what that? are the risks with atrial fibrillation when your heart isn't? pumping regularly is it can build up clots. Well, what's the bad thing with clots in your heart? It can go to your brain, increase your risk of strokes. So a lot of times with atrial fibrillation, um, we usually recommend an anticoagulation therapy. Now, there's certain patients that we need have a higher risk of, of that and that we're more aggressive with that. Um, but sometimes, I mean, some patients, if it's paradoxical or they know when they're going into it and when they're not, sometimes they just get by with aspirin, but that's not very common. So typically a blood thinner such yes. as good old Coumadin, Warfarin, or you know, rat poison, or, uh, <laughs> or um, some of the newer ones, yes. which are easier, but can be expensive. Expensive, expensive. And, you know, you weigh the, you know, do you want to, always check your blood thinness, you know, with the INRs if you're on Coumadin versus not having to with the Eliquis or Xarelto's or those other newer ones. Um, kind of the new thing that a lot of patients are asking me about now is the Watchman. And that's that little parachute thing that, that they can put in, in one of the atria where the clots seem to form the most, the most uh, common place. And so if they can pr kind of close that part off of the heart, um, uh, then they can sometimes get off some of the anticoagulation. And I'd recommend a previous Prairie Doc show on cardiology to get more information on some of those Perfect. options. Uh, this person says, I've had many diverticulitis flare-ups over the last year, and I'm wondering what surgical options there are to help with this. What do you say for those that have multiple diverticulitis flares? Um, so, I mean, I guess if you have recurrent diverticulitis, probably your best bet is to talk with a gastroenterologist or a general surgeon to see if that would be an option. Obviously, we don't try to do surgery if we don't have to, especially with a colon resection, which is probably what's gonna happen, just because it's a major surgery. Um, and what age are you? What risk factors do you have for surgery? Um, but, I mean, I have a patient right now who's going to have surgery because, I mean, she's developed other complications from their, her diverticulitis. She's got uh, abscesses and, or she has had abscesses and has developed a fistula now. Um, so, 
Um, for the most part, we try to treat medically, but yes, if it is recurrent or, you know, depending on how frequent, that might be a consideration. Can diet help, Scott? Well, yeah, I mean, it depends. They, anytime you've got the diverticular disease or diverticulosis, those little outpouchings off the, the side of the colon, the, you'll, one of the diet recommendations will be to avoid seeds or, or you know, strawberries, sesame seeds, uh, sunflower seeds, uh, different things that could get caught up in those little outpouchings to maybe be a nidus for the, the diverticulitis to, uh, to take off. You know, it, it seems like the younger folks that get diverticulitis are the ones that are going to end up with surgery. Mm. Um, those are, and it, it, it has to do with, I believe, they just, it, if it happened at 35, it's bound to happen again and again and again. And so the surgeons seem to be a little more aggressive at just taking care of it then. As you get older, it's kind of hands off a little bit and let's see what happens and what hopefully no complications develop uh, from it at that point. Now supposedly, seeds and popcorn and everything else don't matter with it, but we all know patients that they found that's what triggered it too. Exactly. So. Exactly. <laughs> but they don't want to give it up, though, either. Yeah. <laughs> um, can headaches also cause your teeth to hurt? Any, any correlation there with headaches? You know, when you think about causes of headaches or causes of teeth, you know, even think about kids and ears, and they're, sometimes they're teething and they get an earache. I mean, you know, so can headaches also cause your teeth to hurt? I'd probably just head towards, you know, the sinus headaches or whatever those might be. I hear people talk about those all the time, and I have never defined that exactly. But uh, that's kind of in there. I think about, you know, your chewing muscles being in tension and all that. Yeah, you know, causing like, a yeah, kind of More vice that, versa, the source might be. Exactly. More tension type stuff and what's going on with all of the, the teeth grinding, I suppose, I you know. The people who tend to tense have a lot of tension in their jaw, probably. I mean, that's more of a muscular thing, um, which all those muscles interact with the jaw and the face muscles. So that's another thing I would think of. Um, yeah. Probably worth seeing their doctor mm -hmm. and trying to get see if there's something going on or a cause or what can we do to help. Yeah. Uh, can we talk about shingles? When to get a vaccine and the side effects of the vaccine, Scott? Now, no, I mean, <laughs> the shingles vaccine is, is recommended age 50. Um, and a lot of people have had the first one that came out, the first iteration of it, but now there's the new one and that's a, a two shot uh, series. But it, it's, uh, it's a no longer live virus. But there still seems to be uh, a lot of folks that have that immune response after a shingles vaccine. Um, they get the, the body aches and, and maybe a little fever and, and they just don't feel good. And, uh, and in my eyes, that's actually a good thing because their body knows how to fight that, mm -hmm. that virus now. They, you're telling me that you know how to do it, yeah. uh, but it doesn't feel very good right. when, you're, when you're in the midst of that uh, kind of uh, reaction that they, they, they complain about. It's usually short-lived. Are you finding Medicare is covering it now? Yes, it's yes. better after the first of the year. Yeah. Uh, it's not still free, but it's it's better than it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Two shots, two to six months apart. Yeah, but it's good. Yeah, I usually tell patients just as a side note, one day of feeling yucky is far better than almost two weeks of pain and yeah. itching and 
yeah, it's the pain that really gets them with shingles. It's unbearable and, sometimes. And especially those cases where the pain lasts mm -hmm. indefinitely, it'd be nice to prevent that in the first yeah. place. Hope Haven's Chairs of Hope is a volunteer group that helps restore wheelchairs to newly, nearly new condition, then delivers them throughout the world. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer tells us more about their ministry. John McComb is a volunteer for Chairs of Hope. Its mission is to fix old wheelchairs and refurbish them for people in other countries that can't get a wheelchair. They decided there was a need for refurbished wheelchairs for individuals in third, third world countries and they, they got going and started it up and it's, uh, they've made a, distributed a lot, a lot of wheelchairs since then. A lot of wheelchairs indeed, with over 6,000 wheelchairs refurbished and donated in their shop alone outside of Brookings with help from many other volunteers. So we've had as many as like seven or eight people at a time working here at this shop. McComb says they receive the old wheelchairs from all over the country from their partner Hope Haven. And they collect these chairs from all over the country. I'm not sure how they find out about them, but, but they do. And then they distribute them to us and the various, the various other shops. A typical day for them can go something like this. Well, oftentimes we have to replace the arm pad here because they're frequently broken or cracked or ripped. This one actually looks pretty good. So if I take the bolted nut off, then I can get to the bearings, extract the bearings, check if they're good. Uh, this one's pretty stiff, doesn't really work. And it may not hold, doesn't really hold the tire very good either. And so it just comes off like that. This one should fit 18 by 16. And that's that. And he says all of that plus rebuilding takes around three hours for one chair, but each chair they revamped has been donated to over 100 countries. They've gone to countries like uh, Guatemala, Mexico, Vietnam, lots of different countries. McComb also says wheelchairs are in constant demand and need volunteer help for all their shops. We're looking for several people who would like to join us. Mechanical uh, skill is not required. What a great program, uh, that a ministry. And, and I understand you have a connection with that. I do. Uh, Hope Haven is, is uh, in Sioux Falls, and, and uh, the, the Sioux Falls Rotary Club uh, and the West Side uh, has been involved with that organization for quite a while, and my dad's a big part of that. And, and as he and my mom have both been to Romania to deliver some of those wheelchairs uh, to those folks that need them, and it's been a wonderful experience, a wonderful ministry uh, for, for both my folks and the people that they've been able to serve through Rotary. Yeah. So if you're recently retired or looking to volunteer, I bet they could use some help there in Sioux Falls or Brookings or other places. It's a great, great program. We've got a lot of pro uh, questions, but we'll try to zip through some of these. 
Uh, this person says, I'm mean, hearing a lot about Ozempic in the news. What is this for and is it safe? What would you say about that, Michelle? So as Ozempic is t technically a diabetes medication. Um, and it's um, a really good medication to help um, with diabetes management. Um, I think the biggest thing that's um, come in the news lately is it's also good for weight loss. Um, and so a lot of people are wanting it for weight loss. Um, and people are losing weight with it, um, but you know that's not the primary goal of the medicine. The medicine is marketed for diabetes. Um, how does how does it help with either either one, diabetes or weight loss? So, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it works on the um, hormones in your body that help um, with your appetite, so it can um, decrease your appetite. Um, it also works to block different uh, receptors that help with your body. Um, um, working with insulin. Um, I, I like a lot of the other diabetes medicines, it's just in a different mechanism. But one of the biggest things is it does help suppress yeah. your appetite. Yeah, and I'm sure we've all seen it help patients. Tremendously, but it is expensive. Right. That's right. the downfall. Yeah. How Expen much are we talking? Expensive, well, it's, it can be a thousand bucks a month, uh, you know, depending on what the coverage is like, if, it, if it's even there. You know, it, uh, it does work, uh, and it and it works well. It's it's. Do you, are you going to stay on it? Because as soon as you come off it, the weight will come back. Um, which, a lot of diets are that way, and and so hopefully with the, if you're on it and it's working, hopefully you can take some of those lifestyle changes that you've made to carry you then through if you do end up uh, stopping the medicine. Um, so there's there's uh, conversations, many conversations between uh, healthcare providers and the payers that are, that are, you know. That's the other question, will insurance provide, you know, cover it? It's, it's variable and, and they're, they're running the numbers and trying to see who's gonna stay, stay on it long term, is it worth it for them to cover it or, or, or not? And, and hopefully it is, uh, because it does help a lot of folks and there's, there's quite a few options now there, so. Yeah. yeah, certainly covered better for diabetes. Yeah, but um, still expensive for our diabetics too. Right. Um, right. But yes, covered much better for diabetics. Um, I I don't think um, it's covered at all for weight loss, at least as of January first. Um, but yeah, it, you know, and of course we've all seen patients that hunker down with diet and exercise and had even better results than any medicine. Yes, it's all about balance and just having your goal of this is what I need to do. Um, I've seen it in my practice time and time again. It's, is it hard? It is very hard to get on that treadmill every day, to watch your portion sizes on your plate, um, to eat more vegetables and less candy bars. Um, drink less pop and more water, um, but the goals in the long run far outweigh any medication you can take. Um, it can help control your blood pressure, it can control your sugars, it can control your cholesterol, um, all of those lifestyle choices. You guys have both been practicing medicine long before any of these newer medicine medications. 
what are some ways you've helped patients achieve some of those goals with, with their weight or blood pressure or anything that where lifestyle helps? Yeah, it's, I mean, if there isn't one, you know, good diet program that, that will help somebody or help everybody. And, and so when I look for programs for patients to, to recommend, uh, I'm looking for something where there's a little bit of accountability. You know, so who's, who's watching? Who's, who, are you, who are you accountable to? Who do you have to report that, yeah, I had that candy bar and I shouldn't have type of thing? It just helps, uh, you know. Is there, is there a, a program that will help, uh, help eat right? Because as, as much as exercise is good for us, you can lose weight and not exercise for a minute. I mean, if you do it, if you do it correctly, it helps. You make it better if you throw exercise on top of that. But um, it's been a struggle for a lot of folks uh, to 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 deal with that weight issue and and with what we have available to us and our and our foods and our, our. It's just hard to overcome some of that process stuff. So, it's food is always right there, right? Mm -hmm. You go to the gas station, you go pay your gas bill, which. I pay at the pump, but nonetheless, there's the advertisements, yeah. right, yeah. at the pump. And on TV all yes. the time. Um, your candy bars are two for four dollars today. Uh, your pop is two for four dollars today. I mean, and the convenience stores are crazy, like, in terms of all the bad processed food choices. Um, so it's always right there. You go out to eat and your portion sizes are three times what you should be. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really hard to get around it. Um, I think you just kind of have to like set your mind to, I, I don't want to do that because this is my goal. Um, is it easy? No. But you know, the more you set your mind to it and kind of remind yourself this is my goal, it makes it a little easier. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and planning ahead. Exactly. And, and having shared meals. And, and planning your lunches, and, and if you're gonna eat out, well, avoid eating out probably, but if you're gonna eat out, split it in half, split it in thirds, and put yeah. that in a takeaway, and here's what I'm having. Yeah. Because us South Dakotans, we wanna finish our plate, yeah. right? Yeah. So. And we wanna get our money's worth. We wanna yeah. get right. at, the, at the buffet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a buffet's probably not a good idea either. Yeah. But, yeah. but even sitting at your table, I mean, what do we do? We put everything right in front of us, right? Well, one of the keys I tell my patients, keep it in the kitchen. That way you have to physically get up and get that second portion. It makes you less likely to just take another bite and just take another bite and just take another bite. Yeah. So. Yeah. Out of sight, out of mind helps. Exactly. Uh, this could be a short answer. Uh, do they know of any new studies that have been developed for dementia in Sioux Falls? Um, do you know of anything that that's going on in Sioux Falls with dementia? No, it's you know we're 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 trying in the, in the Sanford system. We're trying to work with our our uh, genetics folks and, and trying to get that piece going. But the 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 genetics around dementia and pre pre predicting dementia is still not there, yeah. um, which a lot of people are waiting for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can you recommend a cream for someone who is allergic to rubbing alcohol? Hmm. You know, in general, what creams do you recommend for, for people for skin care? So moisturizing is probably priority, um, and a good moisturizer. Um, like CeraVe is one of my 
my favorites. Um, Vanna Cream is a really good one. I think those ones without their perfumes that are a little richer are probably your best bet. Um, and moisturizing goes a long way, whether you have psoriasis or eczema, um, it's like the number one thing I tell um, patients about. Um, and then staying away from perfumes, like perfume lotions, mm. um, staying away from perfumed um, body soaps, um, those fancy things that you get at Bath and Body, mm. they smell great, but they might be very irritating to your skin because of their perfumes in it, so. And we're not always meant to shower every single day. Exactly. <laughs> or a long, hot shower might not be the best for your skin either. Right, so, right. Yeah. This caller has suffered from chronic lower leg pain, has had multiple tests done. She's even seen an orthopedist for the pain and nothing helped. She was curious what could cause her problem. What do you say for people with chronic leg pain? Wow. Um, there's a lot there, um, and it kind of depends on, on where it is and where it's coming from it, um, as far as the, uh, the signs and symptoms. But, you know, I kind of break it down, you know, you've got, you've got your, your vascular supply, you've got your nerve supply, you've got your muscles, you've got, you know, the low back and how that feeds down into the lower legs. And, and so it's a matter of just kind of checking off each box and trying to figure out what their symptoms are like. Do they get, what do they get better with? What, what makes it worse? Uh, you know, how those, all that symptom uh, stuff that comes out while you're talking to a patient or even uh, listening to the patient tell you what's going on, a lot of times tells you which way to go first or at least try first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, she mentioned seeing an orthopedist, but there's so many oh, other avenues yeah. there. So I think, you know, talk, going to your primary care doc and saying. Where do I start? I yeah. mean, that's, exactly. that's and exactly. I might not be right, but I'm gonna, I'll, I'll get there eventually. <laughs> it just it yeah. might take a while. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's, you know, if it's not this, well, then maybe it's this. Um, so, yeah, I think starting with your primary care doctor, because, um, yeah, getting that history is like the biggest um, benefit for trying to figure out, like you said, where to start. Yeah. With summer just around the corner, it's time for outdoor activities to begin. Many of us enjoy water sports, so it's prime time to refresh ourselves on CPR basics and any revisions there may be to the life-saving technique. Here's Prairie Doc's Sam Shower. Are you okay? Help! Somebody call for help! Wendy Long is a paramedic for Brookings Health System, and she oversees the training of CPR. She says the first rule is to make sure you're safe and call the EMTs, then proceed with CPR. Always check with your two fingers, never your thumb. Your thumb can find your own pulse, and then all of a sudden it's a good day, and it's really not. So check with two fingers on the side closest to you in the carotid artery, so just right underneath the jawbone here. You're going to check for five seconds, no more than ten. If you don't feel a pulse or if you're not sure you feel a pulse, you're going to start CPR. She says the biggest change in CPR is the beats per minute when giving chest compressions. So your rate's going to be 100 to 120 beats a minute. It used to be a little bit faster, it used to be a little slower. Now studies show that 100 to 120 beats a minute is exactly where we need to be. Long says to press the chest down around two inches and let it fully recoil back up. She also says the sooner chest compressions start, the better chance the person will still be alive. For every minute that somebody goes without CPR, it's about 10% of your brain. So if you do the math, after 10 minutes, you're probably going to have no brain activity. 
And if you're having trouble finding the tempo, Long says to remember these songs. So if you're optimistic, you can be staying alive, uh, 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 or that's why I'm a medic, not a singer. You can do another one by Sedest if you're not quite as optimistic. Or if you are like the kids in my babysitter class, say, we don't know the words to those songs. Baby shark will also work. Baby shark, do, 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 do. The other big change is rescue breaths. So that is once every six seconds for an adult and once every two to three seconds for a child. However, if you're not trained in delivering rescue breaths, you can just do hands only, high quality CPR and get a good result. Good tips to remember are finding a hard surface. The ground is the most readily hard surface available. Keeping your shoulders over the person. If you see, my shoulders are not directly over the patient. If I'm pressing down, I can possibly break ribs and they can become displaced. And if I'm pressing at an angle, I could accidentally puncture or rupture something that should not be ruptured or punctured. So and doing chest compressions on the lowest part of the breastbone. The we want to avoid what's called the xiphoid process. This is a V here. There's a little bone that floats here. We can accidentally break that off and also puncture things that should not be punctured. Very important life-saving technique. And if someone's worried about puncturing anything with doing CPR, should they? Just do the CPR. Just do the CPR. Yeah. Right. yeah. Exactly. Very important. Uh, we can worry about any of that other stuff later. Exactly. We got to get their heart going exactly. and get that blood flow into the brain. Yeah. With apparently baby shark. I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's beyond our time, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Yes. My kids are too old. I don't know the baby shark song. Yeah. I have a lot of kids that come in and sing the baby shark song, but I can't sing it with them yeah. anymore. <laughs> We're going to go quicker through these. We got a lot to cover here. She has a white spot on her lower lip that she thinks might be getting bigger. Should she have it biopsied? You should probably go see your primary care provider and see what they think it is. Because it might be a scar. It might be, I mean, any other number of things. It could be a benign thing. It could be, um, yeah, it could be something more serious. So start with your primary care provider. Let Have them look at it. If they do feel like it's something that needs biopsy, they might be able to do it or they can send you to a dermatologist to have that done yeah. as well. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, but, but, but bottom line, if it is changing, yeah, probably better get, yeah. it, get it looked at or if you're unsure about it. This says, what are the doctor's opinions on acupuncture? Scott, what are your... I'd love to try it sometime. <laughs> there's, there's something there. I can't explain it. I, I can't. But if, if given, the, the, uh, given the chance or if I ever am active enough to have an injury that would, would maybe uh, benefit, I'd love to try it because it's just... It's one of those things that's so, it's, it's just lasted so long through history that there's, there's gotta be more than just placebo, more than just kind of heal thyself, but maybe. Yeah, I mean, there's more, we're not limited to Western medicine necessarily. There's, right. there's wisdom right. from around the world that right. we can use. Uh, this person says, I have a tremor, a shake in my left thumb only. If it is worse if I'm holding something, no other tremors anywhere, will be 69, what kinds of thoughts could cause this? 
I'm I'm jumping probably first to more of a of a familial essential type tremor rather than Parkinson's. I mean that's what most people want to come in and and, and want to worry about. And and so um, those those intention tremors I call them, where you 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 try to do something more fine and you get more of a tremor. Uh, that's pretty common. And uh, and there are medicines that can kind of help those. But Parkinson's has kind of got a different look to the tremor, the pill rolling tremors. More of a resting uh, tremor. Yeah, yeah. and, yeah. Uh, and uh, a lot of times people, patients like to hear about cogwheel rigidity and what that looks like in a Parkinson's evaluation, so. Yeah, yeah. and of course with Parkinson's you've got more of the stone faces, maybe a shuffle gait. And some swallowing soft. difficulties, yeah. um, some speech changes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's other characteristics. Now sometimes it just starts with a tremor that may or may not look like, uh, you know, an yeah, intention tremor uh, or not. Um, so sometimes you just kind of have to follow them along um, and see if those other things develop. But Are there some medications or anything that could help a, a, an essential tremor, this tremor with doing something? Yeah, we have, um, there's a beta blocker propanolol that we prescribe. There's, um, um, a few other medications that are fairly benign for it. Um, I usually start with propanolol because it's very, um, it's a safe medication. There's really a, not a lot of side effects. It doesn't interact with a lot of things. And it's cheap. And it's an old drug and it still works. So yeah. that's where yeah, you absolutely. start. And that's, that's what I do. And if it gets worse or something, then I usually ask the neurologist just to be sure right. if they're going to go to more right. high test medicine on it that we know what we're doing, dealing with. Right. Yeah. This person said they've been taking grape juice for arthritis and it seems to be helping her out. She's curious if there's any science behind this. I haven't heard I that. <laughs> I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm going to bow out a little bit. I, um, but, but, but there are several there are. things that have some natural anti-inflammatory properties and maybe grape juice could be one of them or uh, vinegar or you know or it's just eating your berries which are yeah. highly anti-inflammatory you yeah. know your raspberries your blueberries your blackberries yeah. I mean and help your bowels too yes yes <laughs> how often should a geriatric patient get their pneumonia vaccine so you get it's well, recommended for everyone at starting age 65 yep and if you use the the, the latest uh, 20 the 20 valent one, I mean, that's done. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but otherwise, a lot of times we've still got, you know, maybe one at 65 and then the last one at 66. There's a few different right. pneumonia vaccines in the, in the mix right now, and we're kind of in this big transition of, uh, you know, what to do if you had them before 65 for other reasons, mm -hmm. and which ones do you need after going forward. So there's, yeah, everybody's a little bit different, but it's 65 and should be one and done if you do the one or maybe two. Yeah. yeah. And some people younger than that, if they have immunosuppression, obviously, then your f physician will have you start them earlier. Your frequency might be different, um, but. Yeah. And sometimes I've done it, you know, if it's been 10, 15 years, I might update it, but it's hard to, you know, by then they haven't had the newer, newest one anyway. Right, so, right. You know. With summer and being outside more, should we still get an updated COVID booster or wait till the fall? Anyone ask you about that yet? Well, the latest recommendations are, are really only over 65, you know, for the, the uh, 
know, 65 and 80 mil but compromise. That's the thing, you know, so your patients that just had it in October. Yeah, so it's four months after that is those 65 so and, and immunocompromised. So yes, you can get you can get it. What's coming in the fall? I don't know yet. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard. So would you recommend they get it now or wait till the fall? <laughs> so, I mean, it really depends on, I mean, if they want to get it. I, I actually have, been, have given a couple of patients their boosters. Um, also, if they have people in their households who have a little bit more immunosuppression, I'm highly recommending it for them, not with this new recommendation. But um, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's really, it, I really don't know. It's there. We, I, had two, it's, it's, I, I diagnosed two today. And so for people to think it's gone, it's, it's not gone. Yeah. at all. And, and I've had patients in the, in the hospital, hospital lately too, but you know, you know, I guess the bottom line there, it's, you could say, oh, I'm gonna wait till the fall, like it's a flu shot, but it, we've had COVID throughout, so it's, we know that it boosts your immunity yeah. for a while, and then that starts to fade again, so you could get it boosted now, yeah, and the, if you choose to wait, The you thing can about wait. COVID compared to flu is there's no seasonality to it. Right. It's all year round, whereas flu, I mean, there's some seasonality to it. So that's why we do a fall vaccine kind of yeah. every year. With COVID, I mean, I, you know, it's not a bad idea to get the booster. We'll if learn more. The it, it, there's more to come. Months, I mean, it's, 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 it's bound to adopt some sort of seasonality at some point. Yeah. It just hasn't yeah. yet. But, yeah. It's still a learn and process, right? right. <laughs> This person, anytime I eat or drink anything, I get watery diarrhea. What could the cause be? Oh gosh, any number of things, right? Um, they could have just irritable bowel with diarrhea. They could have food allergies. They could have celiac. They could have something going on in their colon. Um, that would be something you should talk to your primary care provider about. If you haven't had a colonoscopy, that would be something to highly consider to make sure it's not an inflammatory disorder. Um, or it, it could be a sign of colon cancer um, because it's a, if it's a change. Um, so yeah, I would, you know, ha have a visit with your primary care provider um, and then they can do work up depending on your other symptoms, weight loss, um, all of those things. Sometimes it is an infection, you know, yeah. it can get treated and you get tested for it. And then it sometimes and it's benign and we mm -hmm. do over-the-counter therapies for it, like mm -hmm. Metamucil and Citrusel and mm -hmm. yeah. things like that. But yeah, you know, having the, they might need a colonoscopy and sometimes a biopsy shows it's a type of colitis and we can get that treated with a steroid and they're good. Right, so. right. Yeah. My sciatic nerve pain causes numbness in my leg and foot. Can you explain what a cortisone shot does? Does it treat the problem or just treat the symptoms? Well, it's, it, yeah, you gotta decide where the problem is first, uh, you know, and then a lot of times, once you find the problem, that's where you put the cortisone shot, and hopefully that takes care of the issue. Uh, but a lot of times with sciatica, we'll use oral medicines to start with just to see if we can get things mm -hmm. quieted down and make people comfortable, mm -hmm. you know, and, and depending on how that works, then you move on to therapy and, and imaging and you want to find the spot if you can. Uh, so you, you would hope in the end you'd get to the, the shot where the problem arises, but it might be a mechanical thing that an injection won't take care of and you need surgery for. So, I think sometimes patients feel like, well, there's something going on, I need surgery to fix it. It's like, why would therapy or why would a shot help? 
but they can help calm down the inflammation, then there's less. And that could actually just take away your symptoms because mm -hmm. um, it's the swelling a lot of times that puts pressure on that nerve. So if we can get rid of that swelling uh, with either an oral therapy or a steroid shot there, um, and then doing therapy to strengthen those areas so it doesn't come back. We try not to do, I mean, years ago, they, everybody almost would have surgery, right? And now it's less and less um, of a treatment plan because there's other complications from surgery. It may not make it better. And when you look at the long-term effects of surgery versus you know, conservative management, sometimes they end up being the same um, yeah, outcome. The, yeah, the longer I do this job, the more impressed I am with physical therapy. Yeah. Who would who, yeah. have figured yeah. that would do as much good as it does do? Right. Yeah, and I think you know we're blessed to work with some great physical therapists, but uh, I think that's come a long ways too in, in, the, in, in the ways they can help people. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what can be done for peripheral neuralgia? Uh, it depends on the cause, you know. That's another. It's, we're kind of in that same leg pain yeah. question from from earlier a little bit. You know, what is it? What's it coming from? If if it's if there is a cause that you can find, but you know, if it's if it's from a, a back issue, then you can take care of that. If it's diabetes, you can take care of that. If it's um, yeah, it's usually there's other nerve pinches that can go on in different areas, whether it's in the groin or the lateral leg or something, where you can treat those with some medicines, but it's, that's a pretty long list of possibilities yeah. when, you, when you say yeah. peripheral neuralgia. Yeah. Right, right. And you know, like I said, there can be some medications that, that helps, but even if it is caused from diabetes, you want to get the diabetes under control, but then take some medications mm -hmm. to help. Um, about 20 years ago, a caller was told she had celiac disease and has been going gluten-free since. The caller is curious how she could test if she still has the disease. So we do have a blood screening test. Um, maybe reliable, maybe not, but I mean it's a screening test. I think if, you're, if you've already gone through the process, um, and typically celiac diagnoses, colonoscopy, biopsies, mm -hmm. if that tells, I mean, you're celiac. Yeah, um, yeah. The one thing is you want to make sure, if you're going to do the test, uh, the, the blood test again, you just don't want to do it gluten-free. Right. Right. You got to you got to challenge yourself. You might need to challenge. You got to challenge that's yourself true. and then that's go true. at it again. But then if you know if you reintroduce gluten in your diet and you don't feel well, you've got it. Doesn't it doesn't matter <laughs> so what you yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah, and there's and there's gluten sensitivity sometimes where the tests don't show anything, but obviously I don't feel well when I have gluten, so might as well. And I've had patients who, you know, they eat gluten, they get those symptoms. We do their celiac screen; it's normal. I'm like, well, just stay stay clear of the gluten if that makes you feel better, because you probably have more sensitivity. Yeah. Um, so, is it bad to be gluten free? No, especially if it makes you feel better. <laughs> In this last uh, 30 seconds, I just want to thank you both for coming on the show and, and, and stepping up and, and ask anything can be scary, <laughs> but I knew family docs were the, the people to have on that you guys are asked this stuff every day all the time, and yes. I know you care about your patients, and we appreciate taking the time to, to be here, so thank That's you. Thanks thank for you. having me. I'm sorry if we didn't get to everyone's questions this evening. 
Uh, our prize winner, uh, the winner of our prize tonight is Betty from Aberdeen. Thank you, Betty, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be right back after this. Listen today to the Prairie Doc Podcast, a weekly show hosted by Laura Ellsworth, as she talks with medical professionals, takes questions, and walks us through important health topics affecting those in our communities. Search for Prairie Doc on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you find your favorite podcast today. Imagine how just over 100 years ago, nearly one-third of people in the Great Lakes and upper Midwest regions walked around with a goiter on their neck. A goiter is a lump on the throat, which could be as big as an orange, a grapefruit, or larger. Actually, an enlargement of the thyroid gland, a goiter can come from an overactive thyroid gland, an underactive thyroid gland, or an autoimmune condition. But in the United States before the 1920s, the reason was almost always a deficiency of iodine. Iodine is required for making thyroid hormones. In addition to having a goiter, those with iodine deficiency may be fatigued, slow moving, or have poor concentration. Iodine is even more important for brain development for a fetus during pregnancy and for the growing brains in young children. Iodine deficiency can cause fewer IQ points. The archaic term cretinism refers to iodine deficiency syndrome from birth, and affected people are small, mentally slow, and may have an enlarged tongue and thickened skin, among other ailments. Likely 50 million people suffer from iodine deficient brain damage worldwide still today. Iodine is a trace element on the Earth's crust, but factors like glaciers and flooding have caused it to even be more scarce in landlocked areas and more prevalent around coastal areas. In the coastal areas, the iodine makes its way through the food chain. In the goiter belt, the upper Midwest and upper Great Lakes regions of the United States, and in Switzerland, goiters were common due to the lack of iodine in the diet. The ancient Chinese knew ingesting seaweed could shrink a goiter. In the early 1800s, a Swiss physician observed ingesting iodine could treat the goiters of his patients. As with many things, it often takes a war to cause change. In World War I, a Michigan physician observed that over 30% of recruits had a goiter, and for many of them, it was big enough to disqualify them from the military. This finally got people's attention. In 1917, U.S. physician Dr. David Marine convinced the Akron, Ohio School Board to allow him to perform a study with iodine supplementation. The schoolgirls who received iodine had significantly fewer cases of goiter than the girls who did not. Dr. David Cowie, who founded the pediatrics department at the University of Michigan, proposed the U.S. adopt the Swiss practice of adding iodine to common table salt. It took effort, but thankfully the salt companies adopted the practice, and still today we have a cheap, common remedy to help prevent goiter and iodine deficiency throughout the United States. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Aishans and Dr. Boyens, for volunteering their time to help us learn. If you would like to see and hear more episodes, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online, and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts.
As we finish our last live episode this season, we have two more episodes on May 11th and May 18th with valuable information just for you. Please tune in to learn more about blood cancers and organ transplants. From all of us here at On Call with Prairie Doc, thanks for joining us for another episode of health information based on science built on trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Blood cells fight infection, carry oxygen throughout your body, and control bleeding. What happens when things go awry? Understanding your complete blood count, hematologic cancers, next time on Call with the Prairie Doc. Having access to trusted public health information is essential for thriving communities across South Dakota. As Americans, we all value the ability to make appropriate decisions about our health care. To do so, we need access to quality information from reliable sources. The Prairie Docs and their guests have been providing such information based on science and built on trust for the past 20 seasons. Hello, I'm Stephanie Herseth-Sandlin, and I serve on the Volunteer Board of Directors for the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3 founded by Rick and Joni Holm. As we move into our 21st season of Prairie Dog programming, board members, doctors, and volunteers continue to follow our mission to enhance health and diminish suffering by communicating useful information based on honest science and provided in a respectful and compassionate manner. Your donation to support Prairie Dog programming makes an extraordinary difference in fulfilling this important mission. Your generosity helps strengthen the Healing Words Foundation and expand the reach of trusted healthcare providers to share important health information that empowers individuals and families to make the decisions that are right for them. Donations from individuals comprise 50% of the funds generated by the Foundation to support Prairie Dog programming and gifts of any size serve to enhance its impact. Please consider a personal or corporate gift today. Just go to prairiedoc.org to donate. Should you prefer not to donate online, please reach out to us by email and Foundation staff will follow up with you about a pledge. Many thanks for supporting the mission of the Healing Words Foundation and Prairie Dog Programming in South Dakota and throughout our region. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello Possibility. Hello Healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions. Brookings Health System. Ophthalmology Limited. South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians. Avera Heart Hospital. First Bank and Trust. Dakota Allergy and Asthma. Vance Thompson Vision. Monument Health. Black Hills Medical Society. Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society. Pierre District Medical Society. Sioux Falls District Medical Society. Yankton District Medical Society. Orthopedic Institute. Lake Ponset Sailing Academy. Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy. Dakota Bank. South Dakota American College of Physicians. And Swift Communications.